Pastor Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I am your host, Josiah, and I am going to be doing the hosting duties alone once again. For an update, if you were wondering, our uh, co-host Byron is moving across the country and he's taking his time. I think he's stopping in Texas and Missouri, and then eventually he's going to get to Ohio and he is moving from Arizona. Lots of family across the country, but, but again, just a little update on Byron. Um, we've had about three or four episodes now without him, but all that to, to say, I'm still excited about today's episode because we have an amazing guest, Keegan Osinski. Well, did I say your last name right? Yes, that is oh, correct. Uh, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited I'm, to be here. Good. I, I mean, I need to tell a quick story about, about the weird connection between us. If, if you would, uh, give me the opportunity to do that. Yeah. We have a mutual friend, brother. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. My little brother. Honestly, I, honestly, I kind of consider him my brother too. So oh, okay. <laughs> basically, well, we're, basically we're siblings. Well, that, fair <laughs> enough. We, we have, we, we're, we're family. My little brother <laughs> is a, is a longtime friend of yours. Uh, I guess you guys were in the same church for a while or in the same circles, social circles, spending time down in, in Southern California. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, you and I both went to the same school for a while. Um, I probably looked a little different. I probably was a little thinner and had, had Andy length hair. Um, my, little, <laughs> my little brother's hair is now down to his waist and he was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, but he's actually the one that inspired me to reach out to you. Uh, so I just wanted to say a shout out to, to Andrew. Thank you for the suggestion. He, he made a note. We interviewed him. We've been interviewing nuns and duns to kind of say, hey, why did you leave the church? Why are you not a part of this anymore? Uh, really intrigued to know some of your perspectives on that. And uh, in the conversation, I, I pushed him a little bit. I said, well, is there anyone doing anything meaningful to you that's still sort of in church world? And not to pat my own back, he used me as one of the examples. And it was because we're <laughs> feeding kids. But then he used you. He said, and Keegan. Keegan is the other one. And you desperately need to get a hold of Keegan. You need to have her on the podcast. She's doing amazing things that I love. So I, I don't know if you caught caught that episode or not, but a little shout out to you from my little brother, from, from our, from our <laughs> little brother. Yeah, no, that's so great. And that's so, I, that means a lot to me because I think a lot of what I'm working on right now is and I, I mean, I've heard that from a lot of people, um, you know, my book coming out, a lot of people are like, I haven't read any theology, any religious book in the longest time, but I can't wait to read this. And I'm just like, oh, that's so sweet. Well, and I, I want to talk to you about your book, but also before we even get started, we probably should orient the listeners to who Keegan is. So currently you live in Nashville, right? Yes. And you're you're in Vanderbilt's divinity department. Is that correct? Is that your employment? Yeah. So I am the librarian for theology and ethics in the divinity library. So I mostly serve uh, the divinity school, which is a graduate study. Um, so the graduate department of religion, 
the MDivs, uh, so all the folks studying to be ministers and masters of theological studies. Um, so all kinds of graduate students working in religion is who I mostly get to hang out with. Now, longtime listeners to our podcast might be wondering, wait, does that mean we're going to start branching out to like millennial librarians or millennial <laughs> theologians? It, it's pastor adjacent. So we're going to. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. Because you're basically <laughs> helping pastors study or would be future pastor study, right? Totally. Yeah. I personally have not experienced a call to ministry, but, um, you know, in some ways, librarianship is its own ministry. Um, and I do get to serve a lot of ministers in my work. Well, you you did your undergrad at Point Loma. You, you were a philosophy mm-hmm. theology major at Point Loma, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's there's an interesting discussion about this amongst our little Nazarene tribe that are pastors supposed to be theologians or are they, you know, what what, what is the ultimate embodiment of pastor? Is it just, you know, preacher? Is it theologian? Is it, you know, counselor? Whatever it is. So I think there's something to be said about pastors needing to be good theologians as well. So there's something pastoral about being a theologian. But then you go on and get your master's in something I, I still, it just, I scratch my head. I want to know what this is about. You're basically like a library scientist. You got your master's in library tech. Yeah. So it's a master's of library and information science. Um, basically any librarian, like professional librarian you meet has a master's degree, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, and basically a library degree, um, you know, teaches you how to search. It teaches you information behavior. So like how people seek out information um, and like the best ways to like meet people when they have an information need, um, as well as things like cataloging, metadata, like how to organize information, which is really an interesting thing. It sounds weird and boring, but it's very political. Like there's a lot of like justice issues in librarianship, uh, especially being talked about right now. There's a whole kind of burgeoning field called critical librarianship. Um, wow. That's really interesting. Um, but anyways, yeah. So there, there's definitely some specialized skills to learn when you become a librarian. If we say critical too much, though, people might click away because I, I guess we're, we have feelings about anything, any, any theory that starts off with the word critical right now. Critical. Right, so, right. so you're a library scientist, but you also got your master's in, in theological studies as well, right? Yes. So one of the perks of working at such a great institution like Vanderbilt and the Divinity School here is I was able to do a degree uh, while I was working full time in the library. Um, so I got to study with like some of the best scholars in the business um, here at Vanderbilt. And that's been so great. And not only does that help me, um, you know, do my job better as far as like being in the library and working with other students, because I, I've already gone through the same thing that they're going through. So I'm able to kind of meet them where they're at a little bit um, more efi- efficiently. Um, but also it was just so great for my own work and my own research and writing to, to, um, get that kind of formal education. Um, so yeah. Well, it's, it's intriguing to me. Part of what I love to do with this podcast is just hear stories of, of young folk. Most of the time, uh, our primary interviewee is, is a young person figuring out how to pastor here and now learning that maybe some of the the paradigms, the framework for what once was in the church 
are a little antiquated, a little out of date, maybe need to be evaluated. Uh, we also have occasion to, to have folks that come on that once we're a part of a faith community or once we're faithful attenders of a church on a Sunday morning, if we want to put really narrow focus on what that means. Uh, and then they have since disengaged from such practices and just hearing those perspectives. But you you fit this interesting sort of first time mold for someone we're interviewing. You've written a book. You're you're not um, in ministry, in vocational ministry, technically maybe, not as like an assigned pastor, but you are bringing up a subject that has huge implications, especially in the last 20, 30 years. This has been like the buzzword, the topic that tends to be the absolute most divisive topic <laughs> that is brought up. And uh, I mean, we'll just come out and say you, you wrote a book and it's about to publish, depending on on your publisher, it actually, by the time this podcast is out, it could be out and available for purchase, right? Yeah, hopefully any any day now. Any day now. So we'll see if it's out or not. If it's out, you'll probably be able to figure that out because it'll be linked in the description. Uh, but basically, you wrote a book called Queering Wesley, and then the subtitle is Queering the Church. Is that right? Uh, so actually, it's just the title. There is no subtitle. It's Queering oh. Wesley, Queering the Church. But okay. Yeah. I just assumed because I think it was smaller font in the copy I got and it was underneath. So, oh, yeah. But you you shared a little something about this. And before we get into what you shared, I just want to make a connection that I find intriguing because th the reaction to you just sharing your cover was crazy. And <laughs> people had all kinds of feelings about it. Um, but I, I don't know. It, you, you even address some of this in the book there is something unique and intriguing that I see connected, uh, not just between our stories, but between sort of the outrage and the outcry, basically against your book. Like there's some judgment about your book by the cover, which I'm pretty sure there's an old adage that says, <laughs> maybe maybe don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, <laughs> but th there's something in scripture that specifically addresses this, right? There's, we talk about, or we talk about, we hear often this judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah and sodomy and all these things, because that's naturally going to come up maybe with, with a, a title as, as uh, evocative as queering Wesley, right? But then if we go into scripture, there's a reminder that the actual issue with, with Sodom was, was pride, was power, was comfort, and was the fact that there were some needy people, some hungry people that were being glossed over. And in fact, it's in Ezekiel chapter 16, um, they're the, the author, the writer is basically lambasting Jerusalem for being worse. Like in Sodom did this and you've been worse. You've been more detestable than that. But it's interesting because, because this topic, um, LGBTQ plus is such a, such a divisive conversation and has been for, I don't know, going on probably three decades, maybe, maybe longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so I just want to start with your cover and the reaction to it, because I see these fun connections. Sodom didn't feed hungry people. I've tried really hard to, to feed hungry people. You and what you're talking about, you're just, people make the assumptions that, oh no, that's just doing the same thing Sodom and Gomorrah did. And there's like this disconnect to what the scripture even actually says or talks about. So you, you put this cover up, you have this John Wesley bust and a very colorful front cover of the book and you post it on Twitter and what happened? 
Uh, well, it definitely got a lot of buzz. As you say, I mean, it is a, it is a fairly provocative title, which I kind of forgot about. And I, you know, I think I'm in a certain kind of bubble of like the academic world where like everyone is queering everything. <laughs> like, like queer theory is its own discipline and it's being, you know, applied in all kinds of other, you know, cross-disciplinary um, areas. And so the, the idea of applying queer theory to a religious text is actually like, not that crazy. Like it's, it's kind of like passe at this point. Um, but I forget that not everyone is like in the same world as I am. And so of course, like people got really kind of stressed out about it. Um, and yeah, people had had a lot of negative things to say because they're just assuming what is going on in the book without even having read it. Um, what do you think they're assuming? What is the the fear that they're they're assuming your 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 uh, political propagandist you know position is? Yeah. So I um and this is this is a good question too because I to some extent, I probably am doing what they're afraid of. <laughs> um, you know, like some of the people were, you know, saying like, this is awful. Can you believe this, this book, this title, this cover? And other people would come in and be like, hey, like you haven't even read it yet. Like, to, you know, give it a chance. And meanwhile, I'm kind of like, well, I mean, they, they're probably not going to want to actually read it <laughs> to be fair. Um, Cause I'm, I'm guessing that they think I'm making some kind of claim about like, guess what? John Wesley was gay or John Wesley would have been totally fine with gay people or, you know, like John Wesley, like dressed in drag. I don't know. Um, and none of that is actually true, including like, no, I, I don't think, John Wesley would be like affirming, like we would say today. Um, maybe he would, I don't know. But as he is now, as he's written, as his work is done, like, no, no, he's not affirming in any sense of the word. Um, and so I'm not trying to make that claim um, because that would just be an anachronistic and silly. <laughs> well, and it's such an interesting not just title, but position perspective to share. I've read a good chunk of the book and you you have some, so to, to go back, you use the word queer, like queering theory. And that's sort of just like a, a, a type of critique of a work. You, you, I'm gonna read your book if that's okay. Can I read part of yeah. the book, quote it? Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And this is in one of your last chapters in your conclusion. Ultimately to read Wesley queerly is to read with Wesley against Wesley. So you're kind of intentionally trying to, to change perspective as you're reading some of this source material. You're trying to, in queer, to define it in this way maybe is more just like the, the different, the unique, the not normative approach. Yes, not, exactly. not assume that you already know what is said or already know what he is going to think, say, do, but try to almost take yourself out of your own perspective and read the source material. Exactly, exactly. It is um, a self-consciously playful and creative work, methodology. Um, it's like on purpose reading it, not necessarily exactly how it was meant. It's on purpose looking at the text and um, asking questions of it. Um, 
finding the weirdnesses, finding the cracks and the holes and kind of like poking and prodding and, and kind of just like messing with it. It's doing that on purpose to see what comes out, to see what can be generated. Um, and particularly in this case with regards to gender sexuality and stuff like that. So it's a double, there's a duality to that word. Cause on one hand, queer as just different, unique, not the norm, but then queer is also like regarding sexual orientation, sexual identity as well, which is what is very clearly going to be the thing that has been stirring up the pot with the cut. Cause the cover of your book, as I said, is very colorful. And obviously if there's lots of colors, there's certain connotations, but, <laughs> but as a purely academic pursuit, I'm so intrigued. You go on to say as Methodist liberation theologian, Jose, uh, Minguez Bonino says Latin American liberation theologians are increasingly claiming their right to quote misread their teachers to find their own insertion in the theological tradition to offer their own interpretation of the theological text. The act of deliberately misreading your teachers in order to birth your own method and mode of thought is a standard and necessary part of the process of scholarship, including theology. So I'm getting the sense from this book and from you that there's this deeply academic practice that you're applying to Wesley. However, you're using a word that is intentionally provocative to also say, but this is a particular type of querying that has a double meaning, which is why so many people have all of the feels about it. Because up until this point, especially in maybe American evangelical circles, the opposite practice has been practiced. There has not been this, you know, misreading intentionally to make sure you're not reading your own biases into a thing. There's just been this black and white written in stone guaranteed. We know what's right. Fundamentalism that has been applied to most theological beliefs or biblical readings. I'm curious about, well, I actually want to know your upbringing a little bit too, because I, did, did you grow up with sort of this fundamentalist, like, this is how you read this scripture, this is how you read that one, this is why you believe this, this is how you believe that. Did you grow up, because I grew up with a very intense, like, this is how to read Genesis 1, this is how to read the story of Noah, this is how to interpret the Tower of Babel, which is not terribly academic, right, and it's in its reading, but did you grow up with a similar upbringing? Uh, so not really. I, I grew up, like, as a child, only going to church on Sundays. So like as a, you know, in elementary school, middle school, like I knew Jesus rose from the dead, but that was pretty much the whole story. Like I didn't know really much. I didn't even know people went to church on Christmas until I was like 14. Like I just didn't, it didn't like connect that like that was a religious holiday. <laughs> um, so I didn't start going to church until I was like in high school. Um, and I was going to youth group and it was a rather uh, conservative church that I went to. It was like a non-denominational um, John Piper, John MacArthur reading uh, type of church. Um, and they definitely had a very kind of strict literalist um, view of scripture that I, you know, I learned and I learned well because I'm, you know, I'm an academic at heart really. Right. So it was like, here's the rules. All right, let's do it. <laughs> um, the rules. Yeah. And then, I mean, eventually that came to kind of like bite me in the butt when I, um, you know, went to college and started actually studying this stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of, you know, 
burn some bridges there just because I was like learning theology and asking questions and, and, uh, you know, straining some relationship. Well, I wouldn't say I was straining the relationships just by, you know, learning things and, and, um, you know, becoming a feminist, for example. Um, but it, it made it difficult and I, yeah, ended up kind of pushed out of that church. <laughs> But, but you found yourself in a place that was a little more hospitable or welcoming in the in the Nazarene little tribe then? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of funny. People people really don't expect the Nazarenes to be like the progressive character in the story. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> but that that is my experience, right? I came from this very conservative kind of fundamentalist background. And then when I was at Point Loma, the Nazarenes were the ones that were, you know, encouraging me saying, you know, women can preach. Uh, we believe in feminism uh, and like teaching me different ways to read the Bible, different ways to engage um, academically with religion. Um, in addition to just like being there for me and caring for me as a person. I mean, the, the, you know, professor's that I had there are still to this day, you know, some of my biggest supporters and my greatest, you know, friends um, and colleagues now. Um, and so like having that support um, on a personal level, um, you know, in some of my real darkest days um, is what ended up, you know, making me Nazarene. I started going to Nazarene church. Um, and I, you know, I always say like, you know, you, you, you can't really choose your family. Um, and sometimes I feel like I kind of got adopted into the church of the Nazarene as a family. Um, because I, I, I can't, I can't tell you why it's not like I chose it. It just happened that way. <laughs> and it's so intriguing to me. You went from a very fundamentalist, you know, super conservative, complementarian, Calvinistic spot mm -hmm, to a Wesleyan mm -hmm. institution. Mm -hmm. Like the institution is Wesleyan. Yes. Uh, and in, I think you didn't start out studying theology right away, right? Right. I started as a journalism major because I've always been, you know, a writer, you know, ever since I was, ever since I could hold a pen, I was writing. Um, and so I went to school thinking I would, you know, be a writer. And, but once I got there, I took the, um, you know, Point Loma, most of the Nazarene schools, they require you to take certain Bible classes and theology classes. And so my first semester I took a New Testament class and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Like what? Um, it was just like my first taste of like academic theology and like really, you know, learning some things about the Bible besides just like kind of applying it to your life, you know, <laughs> um, which I, that's, that's good too. I, I whatever, <laughs> but, um, so I was like, okay, actually change a plan. Like I can write, I already know how to write. I ended up doing a writing minor. Um, but I changed my major to philosophy and theology because I was just like, so interested. I probably, the funny thing is I would have probably been a biblical studies major, but I didn't want to have to take biblical languages because I was scared. Um, but then because the Bill Fee major is so few credits. I just like needed more credits to graduate. And I ended up taking three semesters of Greek anyways. <laughs> were you, were you in the 7.30 times a week Greek class? I, yes, I took that. Yes. I took that at least once. I know I took with Bob Smith 
um, one the, one the semester. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I fun, love fun times. Fun times. I love I love Doctor Smith, but with all due respect, and I, you're not supposed to say that. I was I said that once, and I was like, that's actually not respectful. I'm like, oh, <laughs> truly respectfully, please don't put eighteen year olds in a class at seven thirty. That's Greek. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't hang. I could barely could barely wake my brain up enough to intake anything in that class yeah it's I mean I'm an I'm generally a morning person but that like Greek at 7 30 a.m which is crazy that they do the same thing here at Vanderbilt like all the Hebrew and Greek classes are like first thing in the morning it's it's insane I don't understand what like it is about language instructors that are like yeah this this is a good idea that's it must be there, there needs to be a case study done for like ancient language you know teachers <laughs> linguists and like something about them they're just morning person I think everyone wants to wake up learning a dead language right like that's just a thing that must be they must be stoked about but that huh? that that is an important anecdotal side note though because part of what you you unpack in your book is some of this original language stuff, which is interesting. You're in this spot where you have the safety, this space to ask questions, right? Like that's basically what attracted you to the Nazarene-ness. Yeah. So um, the Church of the Nazarene, at least, you know, on paper has really um, open kind of uh, theology and like um, well, and I, I found this in Wesley as well. Like you would think Wesley, he's like the founder of Methodism, very structured, very strict, but he really has a, a really amazing openness and, um, just like appreciation for questions and for difference, um, that I was honestly really surprised by. Um, and I, I encountered this in the church of the Nazarene as well. And in, you know, in the manual, our, our, um, Article number four on scripture is really great. It, it leaves a lot open for different interpretations. Um, and I, I really appreciate that because I, I want to be able to question and play um, and explore. I think that's, you know, the beauty of theology. And, and there's, I mean, I've been studying theology now for, geez, like so long. I graduated college like 10 years ago now. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, you know, in some, some ways I'm kind of, I get bored of it when it's so like, you know, learning, you know, dates and timelines and like, that's when it's kind clinical, of like, when it's black yeah, and, white. and then it's like, yeah, this is what the Trinity is like. Okay. Like I understand it's important to have a historical framework for like why you know the church has believed what it does and stuff but at the end of the day I'm like okay let's like do something fun with it now <laughs> or else I just get too bored <laughs> well I I come across so many so many folks that are just the opposite I, they don't like the questions they like the answers they like it clean cut dry I'm mm -hmm. married to a nurse and she couldn't stand philosophy. She couldn't stand, you know, <laughs> some of the biblical studies classes because she also went to Point Loma, but you have to go through some of the, you know, Bible, uh, mm -hmm. the introduction to, to New Testament, Old Testament classes and philosophy classes. And she just, she felt paralyzed with fear of just the philosophy questions of like, I think therefore I am like, wait, no, like I'm here because I can see things and I can touch things like, yeah, <laughs> but what if you aren't? And, and all the all the grayness that comes with philosophy and theology, 
can have the opposite effect. And so, oh yeah, it's definitely scary. I mean, I think, and I think that's what leads so many people to this kind of idolatry of certainty of, of, you know, needing these strict, solid answers um, because like existence is terrifying. (laughs) Um, It's hard to be human and to live in these, you know, fragile bodies and in this like giant universe where we, you know, feel like we have some control, but we're entirely contingent. And yeah, no, it's so, it's scary. Like I totally understand why people don't want to think about it. They just want to be like scrolling on TikTok all day. Um, And and just like how they, because, because again, in her field, particularly, there is a protocol and procedure for most every situation, right? There's like, if this, then that, if this, then that. In theology and philosophy, it's a, well, what day did you read that on, right? And like, what day mm-hmm, did they write mm-hmm. it on? And and who was present? And what season was it? And what culture was, at, you know, all the things come into play. And you can read that same passage, you know, yourself and come away with something different. Or, you know, you can read it with a friend and they'll get something completely different. They'll come away with completely different conclusions because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, absolutely. So, so wonderful about the practice of asking questions so dialogue can happen. But it, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know a little bit about your story and I, I know this is probably fairly common, uh, whether you're a pastor or not, that welcoming of questions that you experienced at an institution, at an academic institution, probably stayed within the academic institution. And maybe you experienced like a different sort of Nazarene world after you left Point Loma. Would that be yeah. fair to say? Yeah, so I I graduated in 2011 and I stayed at Point Loma and worked full time in the library there for a few years. Um, and so I kind of was still in that bubble. Um, and then in 2013, I moved out here to Nashville for this job at Vanderbilt. Um, and I'm still in like an academic, the academic world. And that is, you know, that's where I thrive. This is where I belong for sure. But, um, you know, coming out here and meeting, Southern Nazarenes was interesting and being part of, you know, the, the Mid-South district um, is much different than it is out West. Um, and just like, and just being a part of the church a little bit longer, um, you know, I, I officially became a member of my congregation in 2015. So not terribly long ago. Um, but, and so just like, as I learn more, I mean, I went to general assembly for the first time in 2017 and I saw Bible quizzing for the first time. I was like, <laughs> what is this? It's so cool. I, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up doing Bible quizzing. Yeah. Well, and, and so I run into this a lot where I get so excited and enthusiastic about these like weird, like kitschy Nazarene things where like lifelong Nazarenes are like, oh my God, like, it's not that cool. What is your problem? And I'm just like, it's so, it's like so new to me that I get so excited about it. Um, and that's how I felt. I felt absolutely giddy at General Assembly because I was learning so much. I was seeing all of this stuff going on. I made the, <laughs> I, you might've seen this going around. I made this um, Excel spreadsheet in Google Docs of all of the resolutions and like what they were. And like, I linked to the resolutions and I like kept notes for what happened for each of them. And like, 
all these people were like accessing it because I don't know why the church itself doesn't pay someone to do this. Um, they can pay me next time. If anyone out there is uh, <laughs> on the committee or whatever, putting together a general assembly. Um, Cause I was just so intrigued by the way the polity worked and the way that um, everything was kind of up for debate in a certain way. Like, um, you know, one thing a lot of people, you know, want to criticize me for or, or others is um, not believing, or not believing or like not abiding properly by the manual. Right. And I, it's always like, well, which manual are you talking about? The manual changes every four years. The manual is open to change. That's like the whole point of it, um, which is great. Like we're not stuck with the same manual that we had in 1902. Like it grows and it changes with our world and our experience. Um, and that's a good thing. So like the fact that we have to get together every four years and like rehash stuff is like annoying as I'll get out, but it's <laughs> still good. I don't and know. It sounds like as a librarian, you had a great time cataloging all that stuff. <laughs> I know I'm such a nerd. It's so dumb, but I can't help it. I love it. I love oh, it. I definitely <laughs> referenced, I referenced some of the, the resolution, like, oh, Keegan has it on lockdown. I'm gonna go look at her spreadsheet real quick. I appreciated <laughs> it. Cause like, I wasn't going to sit and wait through all of it. But the fact that you did and you made a nice, clean little spread, I'm like, oh, I, I did. And I then pay a little I realized, bit of attention to this. Yeah, I realized like, you know, hundreds of people were looking at it and I was like, oh, man, now I have to like keep up. And like, <laughs> so I I had to watch every second on the like live stream so I could keep the thing updated because people were like counting on it. And I was like, I felt responsible. So I watched like every second of General Assembly. <laughs> That is, you're, I, so technically that makes you a better Nazarene than me. I don't think I've watched more than like an hour or two of, of those things. I mean, I'm, that's the thing. I'm so into it. And like, that's why it's so kind of like offensive to me when people are like, you're not a real Nazarene. Like you shouldn't be part of this church. I'm like, sorry. Like, I love it. Like, um, I'm gonna do this because I enjoy it. Like, and I like being a part of this weird family. Um, but the way it so. manifests is so well for the namesake of the podcast, shamelessly so millennial in its <laughs> manifestation. Right. Cause like so many, I've seen critiques of you. I, I will laugh quietly when I log on to Twitter occasionally or, or Facebook or whatever, <laughs> like you'll get lambasted for not, not having professionalism or or for using naughty words as I would say in front of my <laughs> children or for whatever the case may be you're just pretty unfiltered raw blunt to the point sometimes even I don't know if it's intentional or just like but just very very provocative like your title didn't surprise me whatsoever like someone coming <laughs> in cold off the street like what does she think I'm like oh she tells you what she thinks She'll put it all over the place. Like she lets you know exactly what she thinks. But there's something to that that I think is shared uh, with many under 40 uh, millennial types where it's just like, a, yeah, the way that it's always done is not something I can do. I just, I can't do that. It doesn't, it's, I, I, it's fake. I wouldn't be able to fake my way through behaving in such a way, professionally speaking. But I think that not just with professionalism, but also with, just wondering and asking questions 
so oftentimes though, I think it's perceived as a threat to once was, to what once was. When in the grand scope of things, like you're saying, for example, the manual, there's been drastic shifts that have happened. And I think now everyone would say, oh yeah, maybe you're not worshiping Satan when you roller skate. Maybe that was a little bit much, right? Like maybe, maybe, we, maybe we can get away from some of the praxis stuff that's just a little silly. Right. Well, and that's, that's something also with the book that I'm, I'm really clear about is I, I'm not really doing anything that new. Like what I'm doing is faithful to the Wesleyan tradition. Um, it's taking the kind of raw material of Wesley's work and bringing it with us, like in this tradition. Um, I, I talk, I think I talk in the book this way. I know I speak this way a lot about the tradition as kind of a stream or a river that we, you know, are catching up with, you know, it's gone on for so long. Um, but it's not like a static monolith in the past. It's a stream that we are now stepping into. Um, and we can change its direction. Um, and it's still the same stream. It's still faithful to this tradition. Um, but it's, it, it can change and it can be different. And like, that's like just how history works. (laughs) How many times have you heard the proverbial phrase? Well, that's a slippery slope. Oh, right. Uh huh. <laughs> I can't tell you how many, and it's just simple things that I brought up, particularly you, you mentioned article four, once upon a time, like, well, that's mm-hmm. a slippery slope. Once you say this about scripture and for the record, I mean, a Josiah version of the article off the top of my head is it's, it's uh, an era pertaining to all things salvation, but inspired pretty much everywhere else in the Bible. And, and the reason being is, do we really need to have this huge debate over whether the sun rose or the earth rotated? Like the, the Bible, the scripture talks about things in a way that's not scientifically accurate. The sun didn't rise, the earth rotated. Like, do we really need to get bogged down in the muck and the mire of pretty silly, petty conversations about, well, obviously it's not a scientific book. So do we need to read it in such a way? Because if you're going to claim complete and total inerrancy, then you kind of have to do that, right? You kind of yeah. have to. Yeah kind of have to say, well, it's the authority on all science. And uh, that's problematic because they had a very <laughs> rudimentary understanding of how things worked then. Exactly, exactly. Scientific process was not invented for some time later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But with your book in mind, with some of these interesting conversations about, you know, I don't know, just the, the, the practice of asking questions. I think there's something there, not just for theologians and academics, but for lay people I would be curious to know, do you think that there's a general illiteracy when it comes to the Bible, but also Wesley? I mean, do you think that the average Nazarene fully grasps its own polity, right? Do you think the average Nazarene church attender really understands, hey, this is what Wesley said. This is why we believe this and why we say this. (laughs) Absolutely not. I don't think even your average Wesleyan pastor does, (laughs) Um, which like, you know, that's okay. Um, that's part of why. I'm <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. Is it okay? I, like that's not up to me. Uh, okay, know, I'll but... say it. I, it's not okay. If you're if you're like the leader of a thing, you should know a little bit about the thing you're leading. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. But this is this is another interesting thing about just my experience and and my the criticisms that I've experienced, um, where you know they want to talk to me about how I because I'm, you know, queer or because I'm queer affirming, um, 
that I don't belong. Right. Which, you know, I understand that line of reasoning. However, you have people, pastors, again, preaching all kinds of things that are on the more, you know, conservative side of the spectrum who are preaching things like inerrancy in scriptures, who are preaching things like, um, you know, nationalism, you talk about a lot um, and they get, a, they get a free pass. So like, hey. I don't really understand why I get in trouble or whatever, because I actually study this and know this and am like, you know, engaging in this work. Uh, but that's not okay. Like, who, yeah, it's just a crazy kind of double standard. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to share a thing that I probably will regret sharing. So yeah, you can edit it out later. Yeah, I'll edit it out later. <laughs> I guess you can tell me if it's too much, but the picture in my head I have of the preacher that is talking about how evil homosexuals are or how evil homosexuality is, or whether they even make the differentiation, right? It doesn't really matter, but the caricature in my head of the person that's just you know, every Sunday preaching against homosexuality is one of two things. One, they're a closet homosexual themselves, right? And they're going to, there was that dude in Denver that, that was like on President Bush's Christian family council. And then he was found uh, with a, with a, a trans, a transgender, no, transvestite prostitute. I can't remember what this story was or what the headlines said about it. Like he mm -hmm. was, for all intents and purposes, the PR nightmare was, he was condemning the thing that he was secretly you know, practicing. Right. Mm -hmm, but in mm -hmm. my head, the problem that, that I see so red regularly within, you know, local churches and, and also very large churches is that there's this glaring issue that the pastor is just glossing over and, and making a huge issue about something else, right. That's something else being normally homosexuality or LGBTQ plus issues. Um, but that glaring issue could be any number of things. And just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, there's this lack of caring about the world around you. So the prime example in my head is preaching against these issues, these perceived threats against the church and against Christianity, all these evils of quote unquote, the evils quote unquote of LGBTQ lifestyles, et cetera, et cetera. While the pastor is basically being a glutton. I mean, this is a, a deadly sin. I'm, I'm nervous about even bringing it up because if you say glutton, there are certain mental images people have in your head, but I'll, I'll just say, confession time. Like that's something that I struggle with. I'm not particularly overweight or anything like that, but basically if you eat more than you need to, that's gluttony. If you continue to feed yourself, if you, if you eat so much and it's more than you actually need while a neighbor or, or someone in the place that you live goes hungry. I mean, that's, that's a sin. That's gluttony. That's, it's bad. But, but it just, in my head, the, the issue that is so frustrating is that there'll be this pastor preaching and hammering the pulpit saying how evil it is that that homosexuality this that the other who who probably is a glutton maybe even makes a joke an offhanded comment about getting to the restaurant before the baptists after the service or whatever the case may be and then you know outside the doors of the sanctuary there could literally be a homeless person hungry thirsty needing a place to stay but good good thing the pastor preached against homosexuality right i mean just the hypocrisy or or maybe it's not that pastor maybe it's another pastor who is i mean one of them is going to do it this coming sunday because unfortunately the fourth of july is on a sunday oh um, yeah <laughs> they're going to talk about you know i would not be surprised if like a jeffress type do you know who that is? i think he's jim jeff i don't know the pastor jeffress guy he's one of the big mega church pastors 
I'm, I'm sure there will be a picture where all you can see behind him is an American flag and he's talking about the evils of homosexuality. I'm like, dude, there's some- Out glaring, of country. There are some glaringly obvious issues of idolatry going on that we are just pretending aren't there apparently. So I don't know if, the, I mean, those two examples, one sounds really dangerously close to body shaming. So please forgive. Did it come across that way? I, I hope you understood what I was trying to say. Right. I think, I mean, that's a pretty common um, kind of trope to use. And it, I think the interesting thing about that, and, and I mean, regardless of like what kind of um, examples you want to give, but the interesting thing is that this idea of hypocrisy um, we've seen, I mean, throughout the entire Trump presidency, I mean, no, no one cares that they're being a hypocrite. It does like the charge of like, don't you people realize you're being a hypocrite? Like they don't care. Even if they do realize, you know, like that is not a really like effective strategy for like, you know, calling people out or anything. <laughs> Cause it's just like, they don't care. They don't see it that way or, you know. So obviously I totally see what you're saying. Um, but I just, I have kind of moved on from even worrying about things that way because it, it just, it, isn't worth it in my mind. I mean, and this is the same thing with like, and we can talk about this in terms of like my book and its audience. And, you know, a lot of these people who, you know, on Jim Garlow's Facebook are like having a meltdown, like the book is not for them. They're not going to read it. It's fine. Like, I'm not trying to do like any apologetics for, you know, being queer affirming or anything like that, because I'm just tired of that like I don't there's plenty of work done out there about like you know homosexuality in the bible uh whether you know you should be affirming or not whether Christians should be affirming or not um all that kind of stuff that's you know very important conversations to have I think for a lot of people and people want to ask me about like well what about this verse what about that verse and I'm just like listen man I'm not your girl for that. Like, I'll give you some stuff to read. I have plenty of reading lists. Um, and actually, if you want me to, to send you some to like put with in the show notes or something, I can Do send it. you some, um, librarian can't help it. Um, right. love to give resources, but I am not the one for, for those conversations anymore. I think maybe at one point I, I may have been, but, um, I just don't have time for it. I don't have patience for it anymore. I'm I'm more interested in doing work that is meaningful and life-giving for me and for others um, who are just kind of in a different place. And so I'm just not really interested in arguing ever, but also with people like that. Like, I just, I'm not interested. As this book is pretty academic, but I think you said you hope that it's not overly academic that you know your voice the way you write it the everyday person that hasn't spent hours in a library studying <laughs> theology and philosophy could probably read it who who do you see as your prime audience I mean mm -hmm. we, I think we we went at length showing that this could be very <laughs> there's going to be a lot of feelings within traditional you know Nazarene sure. circles so who is the the audience yeah so I identified my audience as um, accessible academics. So I do expect academics to read it. I do expect it to be taught. So I already have, um, 
you know, done visits to like seminary and other like university classes who've read chapters. Um, there's a professor here at Vanderbilt who has a, a United Methodist um, theology, I think, class where he assigns a chapter. Um, so that's really cool. And I expect, you know, more people to do that. Um, so definitely like seminary level academic work pastors, I think are, can totally benefit from it. Um, especially with the methodology, this idea of play and like reading creatively, I think could be really great for like sermons and stuff. Um, although I don't, I've never taken a preaching class and I don't know how to write a sermon. I, I have so much, like, I know your audience is mostly pastors. So let me just say, like, I have so much respect for pastors and how they write a sermon every week. Like that is so like, I get exhausted just thinking about that. I could not, couldn't be me. Couldn't be me. Um, well, but thank you. I, yes, <laughs> please receive this. Um, So, but I think my book could be helpful for that. And then also lay people who are, you know, looking for ways to maybe be um, affirming or or they already are affirming, but want to just kind of learn more about the queer perspective um, and like kind of the the culture, I guess, and the way of thinking that is, um, you know, the way that queer Christians read or think. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a pretty broad audience for it, but but yeah, it is it is academic, but there's lots of footnotes, there's lots of explanations. Like, I think on the very first page, I make sure to define what I mean by queer, both yes, in the did. sense of like an adjective, a verb, you know, like I use it in all of these different ways, and here's what that means and how that works, um, just so we're clear, you know. <laughs> um, I try Again. to be really intentional quite the librarian you you got some stuff dialed and pinned down like hey i'm just gonna make this as as objective as i can you know exactly what i'm talking about you know exactly what i'm getting into right but again it doesn't prevent people from judging a book by its cover exactly right and so i'm sure those that can't get past the cover probably won't read it but i don't expect them to (laughs) i mean because this happened to me so this might be it and it's it's not really ultimately your responsibility but i i would be intrigued to know what you think what about those that just have it on their bookshelf and then suddenly that's some sort of indictment on them right like what if as a Mm. pastor I have a multicolored book in my is that 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 something about gay Wesley book like what what is that you know like what yeah because I I agree I think if you want to do theology well then you have to ask questions you have to study you have to do research you have to sometimes guard against your own perspective uh, you know, giving you some sort of bias, some sort of implicit bias, even within just reading a text or researching. But I'm sure uh, there's going to be plenty of pastors out there that their livelihoods could be potentially even threatened by simply reading this uh, this book or having it on their desk. I mean, I again, I'm not trying to put that responsibility on you whatsoever. And I'm not even trying to say that just because they're reading it means they even agree with everything you say. But that's just a thing now that I think is, is so it, it will personally, it's so frustrating for me. Cause I think it's great. TJ in academic circles, that that's what you do in academia. You ask tough questions, you study things, you study theories, but there's this, there's this division. There's this almost a, an attempt to divorce academia from the everyday church that I just don't fully understand. And this, this would be evidence of that 
rift getting maybe even bigger. Like, oh, yeah. you, have, you have that book? You're not my pastor anymore. Yeah, you know, I hadn't even considered that. That's a really interesting thing to bring up. Um, and I definitely, I mean, I have tons of past, especially Nazarene pastor friends who I totally understand that kind of position and I do not envy them. Um, I am very lucky that my paycheck is not provided by the church of Nazarene (laughs) and I'm not ordained. Um, so I have this like privilege of being able to just kind of do this work with complete academic freedom. Um, but yeah, I can totally respect and appreciate that. Like not everyone is in that position and I think it sucks. I mean, I like, I can't imagine how difficult it is. And I know tons of people who've had to leave just because of their own integrity and their own beliefs um, and, and not being able to square, you know, being silent about the things they believe in or, you know, being asked to do things that they weren't, they weren't willing to do. Um, I, I can't imagine how hard that is. Um, But yeah, I think you're right. Like, I mean, even I know some of the people who've already read the book, um, you know, my professors from Point Loma who love me, support me, read several versions, you know, a lot of them, like I've had conversations with them, like they don't necessarily agree with all the, all the conclusions I come to, um, but they respect me as a scholar and they appreciate that I'm doing this work, um, even though it's, you know, a little bit controversial, you know, um, and so, yeah, I don't expect everyone to agree with me. Certainly I'm just kind of putting it out there. Um, and like having fun and hopefully encouraging other people to, um, you know, engage with our tradition in a way that is life-giving for them. And you, you talk about in your book, you say, I'm not interested here in arguing whether queer identity or sex or lifestyle are sinful, um, or whether it's self-avowed practice practicing homosexual can be Christian. Then you basically just go on to say, but this is the perspective that I have as a person that is queer on these Wesleyan sermons. And then like, for, for example, let's take a sermon, one of the chapters. So the way you are in your book um, is you have some introductory chapters, I believe are like an acknowledgement and an introduction. Then you, you take 10 different sermons from John Wesley and you <laughs> queer them both mm-hmm. in the, the duality of the word being like, let's take a different look at this. But then also as it pertains to sexuality and in those identities there, mm-hmm. uh, and you have those tests, then you have some conclusions that again, in the academic world, it's not that big of a deal to disagree. That's sort of like what academia is founded on is different thoughts on different schools of, you know, a different philosophies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there's one particular sermon that I wanted to look at the one chapter slash sermon mm-hmm the circumcision of the heart uh, that I find so intriguing because uh, just the, the circumcision period, right? Like I immediately, and again, for so many reasons, and if you want to respond and unpack some of this with me, you are more than welcome to do it. I immediately think back to this one time where I was trying to teach a passage and it talked about circumcision. I think it was in one of the epistles. I don't think it was like actually with Abraham and God and the covenant that was being made and the agreement that was being made. It was actually a, just like a debate over circumcision between Mm -hmm. Jews and Gentiles and predominantly had middle school girls in the classroom. Right. And just like, like, I don't want to talk about this. It's about a penis. (laughs) Just like, it's like, I don't even want to engage the subject right now because, and it wasn't because I, I, 
I didn't think it merited discussion, but like age appropriateness or like, what did their parents talk to them about this? Or where are they at with some of their understanding of the human body? Right. Cause <laughs> it was like a 10 year old little girl could very well be unaware of any, any male human anatomy at that point. It's like, I don't really want to be the person that like before the parents were ready to talk to them about it. Tells that's them about a, yeah, that's the thing. The Bible is not like all ages appropriate it at all. Not. <laughs> no, and that's what's so unique is because this particular chapter, it addresses something that's already fairly taboo. And I mean, we just were desensitized to it, right? But some cultures would call it mutilation, right? Some some cultures on this planet would say that this is terrible, this is evil, but it was seen maybe as some sort of holiness marking separation called outness. But you mm-hmm. you take the sermon and the the scripture that John Wesley is using and you sort of have this summary of the sermon that you then queer I Mm -hmm. think if I'm using these terms properly I'm not as as academic in particular this is what you say (laughs) this is in whatever chapter is the circumcision of the heart I I don't Mm -hmm. think I got a copy I don't of chapter think numbers. numbers. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I don't think they're numbered. <laughs> it's so. in there. I think it's one of the first, first couple, but yeah, each chapter is the name of the chapter is the name of the sermon. So. Well, and you also wrote a paper about this particular sermon a couple of years ago too. So maybe mm-hmm. this is one that people would be familiar with, but you say in mm-hmm. particular, Wesley uses the second part of his sermon to assert that holiness has four markers. And it's really interesting that he's connecting this with circumcision, but the title of the, the sermon is circumcision of the heart. Right. So there's so many things you can do with that. Um, humility, faith, hope and charity, that these are the four markers of holiness, which is interesting, because if you maybe just take a just a real quick look at Nazarenes and what they think holiness is, you might get a different picture. Yeah, that's something that came out again and again as I was writing this. Like, I, I really did expect John Wesley to be much more of like a pietist I guess I mean obviously like he literally is a pietist but every time he talks about holiness he's talking about love he's talking about care for the poor he's talking about you know like faith in God to like you know give us grace you know like he's never talking about you know like keeping some certain rules no, it's um, not this legalism, this pharisaical yeah. take on things. It's something that first and foremost starts with sort of an introspective evaluation of yourself, right? Yeah. Because you go yep. on to say humility at first is for Wesley a right judgment of ourselves. So being evaluative, right? Being a little more introspective, uh, particularly regarding the sinfulness and helpfulness of our nature. So this this humility is the first sign of holiness, which right <laughs> strike one against typical American evangelical tropes. <laughs> oh. And then you go on, Wesley says that the best guide of the blind is faith. It's telling here that the best guide of the blind, so this is a second, you know, hope um, mm-hmm. or humility and then faith is not, uh, it's telling here that the best guide of the blind is not sight or light, but faith. Holiness does not require us to be shaped into exemplars of normative wholeness quoted uh determined by a hegemonic definition you got to define that word the ongoing joke is i didn't go to seminary so if there's big words you need to define (laughs) it and you're a librarian you're perfectly suited to do that totally Um, happy to definition of what is right and good but rather to yield to the guidance and provision of god embracing our bodies and abilities and identities in the light of that faith 
mean, gosh, that sounds pretty evil, Keegan, that you would say <laughs> we should try to be guided by God's provision. But I, and you go on, you have these four things and you unpack it in, in more in-depth conversations with so many sources, so many different theologians, so many different people. And you continue to, to, to talk about these things in a way that you, I'm going to just read another example. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep <laughs> reading until you tell me to stop. So after the faith part, you say, for example, Jordan points out that the words sodomy and homosexuality are not themselves in the Bible. And you're kind of making this point to say that, well, part of having faith is maybe also acknowledging that we don't know everything. Like we don't have this concrete iron grip on everything. Mm -hmm. However, you know, many do have these opinions about these words, sodomy and homosexuality that they think are in the Bible, but they are not themselves in the Bible, though some translators have rendered words as such. And that other words such as fornification and adultery actually conceal um, as much as they reveal. And then you go on. The general gist of this chapter that I took away was that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be jerks. <laughs> whatever that means to you, I guess what is what that means. But ultimately, you're responsible for your relationship with God. And part of that relationship with God to love God with your fullness is to also love your neighbor. That it kind of makes a full circle comeback to this greatest commandment. And even from this I, no one can see me, but you can see me. So I'll keep doing this for the camera. I'm doing air quotes from this <laughs> queer perspective. You come to a very similar conclusion to what many that I think are trying to remain faithful to this Christian life and whether it's Wesleyan or not are struggling to do as well. You say at the end, finally, Wesley adds as the crowning marker of the circumcision of the heart, charity or love like that holiness in this most simplistic form is being charitable or being loving. And then you say, perhaps the church could be circumcised by humility. Perhaps uh, the call for humility is a call for holiness. Um, perhaps that it, you go on and I'm going to just keep reading. So all I have <laughs> to say, you have this entire, entire sermon exegesis that very simplistically, even though it's incredibly deep and academic and has so many sources of pulls from it's just kind of simply a call to this charity thing that Wesley talked a lot about that Jesus also talked a lot about, but we still get lost in the weeds despite all that. I mean, you spent, for me, this is a picture of you spent an, um, an incredible amount of time reach, researching, diving deep into the source material and the message still remained the same in, yeah. so, in so many ways. Like you, you, yeah. you just tore things apart. You looked at the sky sermons, you read all these other theologians and that, that simple word that Jesus said to the teacher of the law didn't really change a whole lot. Hey, love God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of my goal was, was to show that like a, a thoroughly Wesleyan theology can be compatible with, you know, a queer experience, a queer uh, reading, um, a queer life, you know, like, and, you know, affirmation of these things. And at the end of the day, it does come down to love. You know, I, Mildred Bangs Winecoop is one of my like theological heroes. She wrote a book called Theology of Love that really changed the game back in, you know, the 1970s. And I, I kind of hold that as like a marker of, of, you know, really 
consistent, but also progressive in a lot of ways, Wesleyan theology. Um, And, you know, I always come back to holiness, the definition of holiness being perfect love of God and neighbor. At the end of the day, holiness is perfect love of God and neighbor. And that's what I strive for as a Christian. And that's what I hope to like, you know, uh, engender in my work. Um, and like, you know, spur other people towards, um, at the end of the day, like that really is the, the end all be all of Wesley. Um, and I mean, hopefully of my work too. So before even reading your book, I know that many are going to just write you off because, oh, nothing good could come from a person that publicly, right. Without shame identifies as being, being queer, Mm-hmm. That from the get-go, they're going to say, yeah, I, uh, you're basically, the devil is using you to trick me away from, you know, fill in the blank or whatever. In the yep. book, you also talk about this in a, in a way that's really unique, the image of God, right? The imago dea. I, I don't say the Latin word, right? Can you say the Latin word properly? Imago dei. Imago dei. Okay. Again, I didn't go to seminary. It's an ongoing <laughs> that's okay. stupid thing. I don't really know Latin either. It's fine. Okay. Imago dei. Part of the Wesleyan theology that we sometimes miss, maybe, in some of our conversations and sermons and being nice, good church folk, is that the image of God is in everything, in in everyone, that everyone is image bearers of God, which might mean that we can still learn from those we don't agree with, or we don't, you know, adhere to the same lifestyle choices as or or what. And you would you say this in the book. As well, you talk about the fact that, hey, maybe even my quote unquote queer perspective could still teach the church something. So my question in light of that statement is is pretty simple. And I ask this of most guests. What do you hope the church looks like in light of what you're doing, in light of the work that's happening? Uh, I I know maybe you have some ultimate hopes that like maybe the church becomes more affirming, uh, particularly of queer individuals. But is there like an initial step that like, oh, I hope tomorrow the church maybe starts looking a little bit like this. That's that's more novel than simply being more loving. Like, is there something very practical and specific that you would say, hey, I hope tomorrow maybe this happens? That's a great question. And, And I think my experience with the Church of the Nazarene, like, really speaks to that. I mean, I I'm not. A typical Nazarene. I'm not uh, an easy parishioner to have in your church. <laughs> I mean, some people would say you shouldn't be Nazarene at all. Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, however, I have consistently found in my churches the kind of love and belonging and care that uh, I mean, I know people can only dream of. Um, I feel so lucky. Um, and so like privileged and hashtag blessed, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, like the fact that I have been surrounded by people who care for me, who encourage me, who pick me up. And, you know, I, I, especially this year, I've had the worst year. I, my house flooded, um, in some storms at the end of March completely. I, you know, am displaced. I, you know, I have, I'm living in a studio apartment right now, but the day after a bunch of people from my church showed up to start helping me clean up. And the week after 
I got a check in the mail from my church, um, to help me, you know, cover, you know, all the stuff I had to pay for. And it's that kind of like tangible material care, um, for me, for my body, for my soul, um, that I I think like, if we just kind of keep that in the forefront as a church, um, then that, that is, that is what we need to be going for. And that is this, this love that John Wesley is always talking about. And he did the same thing. He was all about caring for people materially and, you know, and their souls, you know. So it's already happening maybe a little bit. What you hope the church looks like has already happened to you in your life, even very recently. What month is it? It's June, right? It's still June. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just a few months ago, being displaced, it had nothing to do with the pandemic, it sounds like. It was just weather. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it was just weather. <laughs> just just weather, just, you know, climate change nonsense. Just climate change, right. Exactly. We're um, dealing We're dealing with that right now. It's a historic day. And I, I'm in... I'm in Seattle and we right. don't hit triple digits ever, but we are today. It's oh not my great. goodness. Yeah. But the church loving you despite any sort of prerequisites to having to agree or subscribe to the same ideologies, philosophies, mm-hmm. theological perspectives. Like if we could do that, maybe we're doing something. Yeah. And I mean, you know, ever since Jesus, like the kingdom of God is at hand, like it is here, it's happening. Um, it's just whether or not we want to participate in that or if we want to resist it. So I'll ask one more question because mm-hmm. for demographic sake, we do, you were right. We, we have some millennial pastors that listen to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you have a word of encouragement? Cause I, I would assume that many of the younger pastors are going to be a little more open to reading your book, but at the same time, they might have far more pressure from mentors, from congregants, from boards to say, oh, you better not. You better, you better not. Um, That's so hard. Yeah. And I I don't know if you have any words for them or if you would have even an encouragement or if you would just simply say, Hey, it doesn't hurt my feelings if you don't even want to buy it, but talk to me, right? Like send me a message or so. I I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts for them as we endeavor to wrap the podcast up? Yeah. I mean, again, like I so appreciate that kind of position. I can't even imagine how difficult it is to try to to want to try to be loving in this way and feel um, so much resistance from authority or from your own congregants. Um, and I guess I would just say, be brave. I mean, it, it, it's hard and it is scary, but when I see people doing brave things, um, it makes me want to be brave too. And to like continue like living my life and living my truth and that kind of a thing. Um, I, I, it's funny you say like people might be afraid to actually buy or read the book, but maybe they'll reach out. Like, I would love that. Um, I, I've often talked about my role in the church of the Nazarene as a kind of lighthouse, uh, where, you know, there's so many people out there who feel like they're alone. They feel like they don't have any support, um, especially regarding things like LGBTQ, um, issues, being affirming, being queer themselves, that kind of stuff. They feel like they're the only one. And so I'm able to just kind of like run my mouth and like be like, (laughs) like ridiculous on the internet or whatever. And people can find me and then I can connect them with other people. Um, So I've kind of like, you know, accidentally created a kind of community of like weirdo Nazarenes, gay Nazarenes, 
you know, like people who are just like trying to make it or whatever. And like dealing with a lot of these issues that are really hard in this, in this kind of an environment. Um, and so, yeah, I'm always happy to talk to, to, uh, Nazarenes who have questions or want resources. Again, I'm a librarian. So, um, any, any resources you need or want, I'm happy to point you in the right direction, get you what you need. Like that is literally part of my job. So I'm very happy to do that. Um, and yeah. Well, I'm encouraged by the work that you're doing and it's not, it's funny. You always have to qualify nonsense, right? It's not, (laughs) it's not anything to do with, you know, stances or ideologies or whether I agree with everything you say or not, but it's just the simple act of, Hey, we should ask these tough questions and if we're asking these tough questions, look at the conclusions we arrive to, right? I, I think no matter what, if we're sitting there and just accepting things as they are and just assuming this, that, the other, or maybe even worse, we're being pressured to say, this is the only way to view X, Y, and Z. That's, that's deeply problematic. I think that's exactly why we're facing some of the existential crisis moments that we're facing in the church here and now, uh, in this country particularly. The American evangelical church is struggling in, in the wake of COVID to say, no, this is the only way, this is how we've done this X, Y, and Z. And then suddenly there's this blip, right? There was like a cultural pause, a moment where we're like, well, do we though? Like even just in praxis, even in practical, you know, how, how we do what we do, how we gather. But beyond that, there's also so many theological conversations happening around it. So no matter what, I see these questions personally as this pursuit of God's truth, right? Like when we ask questions, when we're, we're trying to seek what, what, what we should know about these things, ultimately we're seeking to divine what God's will might be. And though we may come to different conclusions at the end of the day, I think that's the best we could hope for is striving to figure out exactly who the creator of the universe uh, has called us to be, what the creator of the universe thinks about X, Y, and Z, but also in the process being humble and charitable enough to maybe say, Hey, I don't know, maybe hopefully, but regardless, like Paul said, the greatest thing we can do is is love, right? Without it, it's just, we're just noise. We're just making lots of noise. At the end of the day, we can be love. Or as my co and I have to say this again, cause he's, he's, it's what he says the most, like, just don't be jerks, right? Like <laughs> at the end of the day, if you go to a church, if you're a Christian, just don't be a jerk. This is like a, that's a bad deal. So if you don't like uh, disclaimer, if you don't like the cover, if you don't like the book, that's great. Don't buy it, but don't be a jerk about it. Like don't, Thank you. Yes. don't, don't put her on blast. Right. Like you could still have a conversation without saying, well, she's going to hell. That's for sure. Right. You don't have to be like that about it. You can still engage with, with folks that you maybe don't even agree with necessarily, or if you agree with half of it, whatever the case may be, I don't know how we got so insular and siloed up in the world we live in, but I'm Mm -hmm, pretty, mm -hmm. I'm pretty over it, but Hey, I'll continue rambling if I don't, you know, stop myself. So once again, I really appreciated the time and the conversation, Keegan. Thank you so much for being willing to come on this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for engaging in these conversations. I know they're you know, not always easy or fun, but I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing it. I, I really enjoy it, even if it sometimes gets me in trouble. I think it's necessary <laughs> and we have, to, we have to have these conversations if we want to be honest with, with being a people right? If the church is the people, and again, you talk about this in your book, look at this, wrap it up nicely. 
if, if it's a people, then guess what? Sometimes those people are going to be a little bit diverse and, and that's probably not a terrible thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's maybe something that was designed and intentional. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the podcast. In the podcast description, if, the, if it's available, you will be able to find this book. We're going to put a link in the description. We'll put it on our social media. We'll link her website. And then if you have any other resources, you can, you can just give me all the links to all your database of things <laughs> Great, pertaining to Wesleyan theological studies. If you want to immerse yourself in some Wesleyan holiness the, theology, uh, you're actually, as far as not being a professor goes, you're one of the, the most learned, I would say, that, that I'm aware <laughs> of. I don't know too many other non-professors that have spent as much time studying Wesley as you. Uh, you know what? And it's probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, good or bad, we'll put all those links <laughs> in the description and folk can do their own academic studying. They can research for themselves, come to their own conclusions. Once again, thanks, Keegan, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for, for spending this time with us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We would also appreciate if you would subscribe, review, critique, send us messages, engage with us in some sort of way to let us know what you think about the content that we're bringing you. Uh, if you have enjoyed this, then please stay tuned for the next episode where we will continue to interview potential young pastors, figuring it out, figuring out what it is to pastor in this crazy world. Or I'm excited to say we have a couple a couple of folks that have decided maybe the church is not for them. And I'm not excited because they've decided the church is not for them. I'm excited because they are willing to talk to me about it. They're willing to, to talk to a churchy type person about some of the things that, that they have struggled with. And I think we need to, as Keegan has said in her book, be humble, be humble enough to listen and not assume that we're right. And everyone else is wrong about things. So I've been your host, Josiah. This has been the millennial pastor podcast. Thanks so much for listening and tune in next time.